0: You are now entering the Bolson. Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive magic podcast for the Average Spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DuBose, and the reigning magic world champion, Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. And this week, Nathan is still exploring Spain in the wake of PT Barcelona, so we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Turn3Ulamog himself and champion of PT Lord of the Rings, Jake Beardsley. Jake, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. It's it's. I'm really excited to be here. I I listen to the show a lot, and I'm just excited to talk about my crazy weekend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a lot to talk about. It's great to have you on. Appreciate you taking the time. Jake and I actually met at the regional championship in San Diego earlier this year. We we played each other in one of the later rounds. Jake's a great guy, so we're excited to have him on and talk about. Um, everything that happened at the Pro Tour this weekend. So in today's episode, we're going to be looking at that. We're going to look at a deep dive into Jake's winning P.T., Racto scam list sort of dissect the archetype a little bit and you know just talk about jake's overall experience at the pt and, and how that went and then we'll also at the end look sort of at uh, scam's place in the modern meta right now and how that might change moving forward after the pt results but before we get into that few quick shout outs for our reviewers and patrons we thank you so much to everyone who took the time to leave a review Uh, We appreciate all the feedback and support. Uh, We saw your comments on the PT testing episode about doing a limited episode. So we're going to work on that in the future, probably around the time of the next PT. We'll have that out. Shout out to everyone for their five star reviews on Apple podcasts. Everyone who's left feedback uh, on the episodes on Reddit, on Spotify and any other platforms you guys are using. We really appreciate that. Big welcomes to any new followers and all the listeners who have taken the time to tune in. Uh, This week, we have two new patrons in David Tobin and Caleb at the $5 tier. We really appreciate that support. Every every patron helps keep the lights on here at the Bolt Zone, and we couldn't do it without you. So if you listener would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on your favorite platform or by signing up for the Patreon. Uh, We'll put a link for the Patreon in the show notes, and we have uh, tiers as little as a dollar a month. So if you want to check that out, the link will be there for you, and we really appreciate the support. But Jake, let's go ahead and talk about your welcome to the Pro Tour. This was your first Pro Tour. So I guess just start us off. Tell me a little bit about um, what your magic life has sort of looked like since we met back in San Diego. What's kind of gone down and and got you to Barcelona?
1: Um, Yeah, so uh, I think we played late in day one in San Diego and I, I ended up having a pretty solid day two. I finished 22nd. Uh, with Rakdos midrange, the I think consensus best deck in in that tournament. Yeah. And at that point, I qualified for the pro tour, but I had to have my invite deferred because I um I'm a graduate student at Virginia Tech and had final exams and qualifying exams, and, and sure. so I had I wasn't able to go to mini, but with uh, I was able to get my invite deferred to Barcelona. So that took some of the pressure off for Dallas because I was just like, well. I'm already queued for the, for the Pro Tour this qualifies for, so I just kind of played Rakdos because that's, at this point, all I play in any format. <laughs> and uh, I, I did okay. I made day two, um, and one of the guys I worked with from Roanoke went reasonably deep into the tournament with the with the list we put together. Um, past that, I worked with Team Sanctum of All for, uh, the pro, for Barcelona itself. I got really lucky. Kane Reinhardt, who's obviously a phenomenal Magic player, put yeah. out uh, a thing on Twitter asking, hey, is there anyone who's qualified for the Pro Tour that isn't working with anyone that's interested? So I, I reached out and and we were able to figure figure that out. So I worked with an incredible team and then uh, just kind of ran
0: really hot at the tournament, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. I've heard good things about Sanctum of All and, and some of the people that have been testing in there. So that's awesome. And how cool to to have Kane reach out and yeah, that yeah. opportunity just kind of fall in your lap. That's great. So, I guess uh, leading into the PT then, um how early did you settle on your modern deck? You know, was Scam always going to be the pick or or were you kind of bouncing between things?
1: So, um myself and one of my teammates Liam Kane, uh who's um I think from the from from the Toronto area. Mm-hmm. Um the two of us were pretty high on Scam from the beginning and other teammates sorta came in and were like, yeah, Scam seems really good, and then would would sort of ebb and flow in and out of like, yeah, I think Scam's good. No, I think people are going to be too ready for Scam. So I was really high on Scam for the majority of my constructed testing. I did sort of get cold feet towards the end with the blue-black ring deck showing up. I had had Mm -hmm. some problems beating it from the Scam side and had played some matches with the ring deck and had done pretty well and a lot of people on my team also liked the ring deck but i ended up do uh running some in paper testing with a couple of friends of mine just to see like can we figure out a way for scam to win that matchup and it turns out it was it was close enough that i didn't want to a give up all of the testing of other matchups i had done with scam and b I think that I would have, A, I don't think I would have played the blue-black deck very well. <laughs> and I certainly don't think I would have been able to win blue-black mirrors, for instance, against better players. That's The blue-black deck is not something that really plays to my strengths as a player very well. And I value that pretty highly, especially in a format that's as wide open as modern.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think just even acknowledging that like that deck doesn't play in your strengths and and having the awareness to like not fall into that trap of oh this is exciting you know i want to pick it up anyway i think that's that's awesome so how how did you feel then i guess about both formats going into it you know modern and limited there's big differences and i've heard mixed reviews on the lord of the rings format some people love it some don't so what were your feelings kind of going in confidence level about both of these formats
1: so um I guess to start off with modern, I, I was pretty sure that scam was going to be the most played deck and I was pretty okay with that. I've found that I, I, I found at least in since competitive magic really came back, I've had a decent amount of success, just playing the best deck and trying to tune it in some capacity. I played mm-hmm. Rakdos mid range and standard. I played Rakdos mid range in pioneer. I, I think like, right. A lot of some of those skills at least are, are somewhat transferable. And yeah. I found that I've, I'm pretty comfortable with tuning That style of deck. So I felt good about my constructed spot, or at least as good as anyone can going into their first pro tour. I Mm -hmm. I didn't expect to do very well, but I I was okay with that. And I think my prep was good for limited. I was a lot more concerned I'm not a limited player. I don't play very much limited. I, <laughs> I prefer constructed by a pretty wide margin, and so that was one of the big things that that being on a team helped me with. Is it right? It forced me to get a lot of limited games in against other pro tour caliber players, whereas I wouldn't be able to do that the same way. Testing on arena isn't the same, even testing on Magic Online. Absolutely not. Isn't the same. Yeah. And, yep. and so being able to get that prep in, I felt better going in the format itself I, I enjoyed it okay i guess i don't know sure. <laughs> obviously there's the there's the color disparity with green being so much worse on average than than the other colors but you you also that can be an exploitation point where oh mm-hmm. greens always really open i can get later pick enraged huehorns or miramir Mirror Mirror guardians or the other like higher value green commons and that was sure. uh, a line i wanted to go with i had found that i liked green pretty well in testing so I it it worked out pretty well in my first draft. I got uh, I was able to be base green with sort of splashes in red and black for mm-hmm. a Doors of Durin in red and
0: an Orcish Bowmasters in black. Yeah, and that seems like a pretty good plan.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, that that draft worked out pretty well.
0: Yeah, so so we're playing the best deck in in constructed. We're playing the worst deck in limited, but still yeah. splashing Ractos. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. So this being your first pro tour, something it'd be great to get your perspective on. It's just, you know, walking into the room on that first day and and just having that realization that, that you've made it that you're here at the pro tour. What was that moment like for you just that first day getting into it?
1: Um, it was pretty surreal. I, I mean, I've been I've been working at this for a long time. I came pretty close when I was still in high school. I mm-hmm. lost the top eight of an RPTQ playing for the invite to go to Bilbao, Spain, actually. So it, it kind of felt right that I got to go to Spain in my yeah. first round
0: after
1: all. <laughs> um, but it was, it was incredible. I, I got to see all of these people that I've grown up watching play and getting to know that like, hey, I, for all I know, I'm going to draft against these guys. For all I know, I'm going to get paired and constructed against these guys. And that yeah. was, that was super, super exciting just because it's, I mean, it's always been kind of my dream and, and, getting to feel like i crossed something off my bucket list was was really really cool.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. How long have you actually been playing magic then?
1: Um my dad taught me how to play in Betrayers of Kamigawa, okay. which was in 2004, i think. So mm-hmm. closing in on 20 years, i guess. It it's sort of my dad was a TO in the bay area of california for a long time, so i've just okay. sort of
0: grown up around the game yeah so life lifelong accomplishment then yeah this weekend that's great all right so obviously you know on day one you ran super hot you you 3-0 the draft you only dropped one game and then day two rolls around you go one two unlimited what's going through your head at that point you know what did it take to to rally back and then you know just not lose again <laughs>
1: So this is gonna sound kind of backwards, but I was thrilled to go one and two in that draft. Okay. And, like you look at look at the the three names of the players I played against. Christian yeah. Calcano, one of the best to ever <laughs> do it. Greg Orange, one of the best to ever do it. Kai Buddha, arguably the best to ever do it. I, I winning one out of those three, just <laughs> looking at the players, felt almost like an accomplishment in and of itself.
0: Absolutely, yeah. But
1: also my deck was just terrible. I, I completely botched the draft. I think my seat was pretty tough, mm-hmm. but I I don't think that my deck was very good. And I think that I, I made a couple of key errors in pack one that, that I should have gone a different direction than I did. So getting out of there with a win almost just felt like, hey, that's all I needed to do. We can go from there. I was sure. also just really, really the entire tournament trying to focus on. I just want to focus on the next match. I don't want to think about, oh, how do I need to do to re-qualify? Oh, how do I need to do to make top eight? Like that's... Yeah. That, I found that getting in my own head about that just kind of derails my tournament.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I've
1: just tried to focus on every, every big tournament I've played recently, just focus on playing one match at a time and then not thinking about any of the, the ramifications of it or like yeah. the previous matches or anything. I know it, it trying to just... It, it I, I don't know how many listeners are gonna be familiar with um f- the the SpongeBob reference, forget everything except fine dining and breathing. <laughs> and I was just trying to do that with with the tournament itself.
0: That's awesome. I, I think that's a really, really important perspective to go into these tournaments with. You know, a lot of times some things are out of your control and and being able to bounce back from a rough start or or just totally flip the script and and turn that rough start into a positive. I think that's that's really good. And As we saw it worked out for you so that's great so next uh, let's go ahead and and talk a little bit about your deck itself Um, but before we dive into scam uh, we just want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by boogie board the ultimate lcd life pad boogie board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again after taking down your opponent just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over Boogie Board's best-selling Jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface, while the Jot Pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. You can learn more at myboogieboard.com games. That's myboogieboard.com games. Never start a match without your Boogie Board. I guess we should probably just start um, a brief introduction to kind of this archetype for any listeners who aren't familiar. Um, at this point, if you're playing modern, you probably are familiar with this deck since it's the most popular deck at the moment. Um, but basically, you know, red, black, this deck has some super explosive starts being able to uh, evoke either a grief or a fury into play uh, and then keep it on the field with a feign death or undying malice or a similar effect that puts your opponent on a really quick clock and can also, if you're using the grief plan, really deplete their resources. And then you just surround that plan um, with a lot of really powerful threats. You got Ragavan, you have uh, Douthy Voidwalker, which we're going to talk about. Brand new Orcish Bowmasters has been a really great addition thought sees to to kind of continue to control the hand you got um, powerful three drops and fable of the mirror breaker and seasoned pyromancer then you know coming out of the board you have blood moon effects you have chalice of the void engineered explosives um, and then just a bunch of silver bullets to kind of to take on any deck in the format so i think a lot of the reason that this deck has gotten so popular over the last couple months is not just bow masters but the it really can have game against just about everything. And it's dominating the meta as we've been seeing. But Jake, your, your build has a couple of interesting features that I want to sort of touch on and, and talk to you about. So in the main deck, you played a, a one of Croxa Titan of Death's Hunger and then another one in the sideboard. What was sort of your thought on that card? And how did it play out for you over the weekend?
1: Um, I was in general pretty happy with the Croxas. So the logic there is, Del- in, it's primarily there for the mirror which sounds a little bit weird because it's a card that you need to go to your graveyard for it to be really effective and you're playing the mirror is a void voidwalker matchup and they might even bring in more graveyard hate uh to try and fight off the the turn one evoke plus fame death or undying malice but my thinking there is a it's an additional turn two play which mm-hmm. the deck has always kind of been lacking bill masters fixes that uh, in some capacity, but bowmasters and croak bowmasters can be a little bit low impact on certain sure. boards, and also the easiest way to lose the mirror is to leave a dalthy void walker in play anyway. So it, it my my logic is, y- you need to get the dalthy off the table either way and if you're able to get the dalthy voidwalker off the table then Kroxa is always going to be one of the best cards in attrition mirrors right you're you're trading resources on the front end and it's a repeatable threat on the back end mm-hmm. i i was very happy with Kroxa in a number of matchups i like it in the mirror i like it against uh I, I like it pretty well against tron i'm not necessarily uh 100% sure on whether or not you want the second copy against tron but also, having that extra little bit of reach, I think, matters quite a bit. Crooksaw um, was obviously it created one of the the more exciting moments in the finals. Yeah. Um, and and for for better or for worse, I I think that I, I'm content with the point that I made. But uh, it I'm I'm happy with Krokso and I wouldn't want to leave home without at least one, if not two. Yep,
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that the the point of like if you can't get the Dorothy off the table anyway, then it doesn't really matter. So that's your plan. You want to get it off the table and then you have a card that, that super matters. I think that's really important. And yeah, that finals play, that was crazy. What, what was kind of going through your head at, at that moment with that Kroxa, just kind of weighing all the options? So my
1: read was he had Boseju because he mm-hmm. didn't play land for turn, but it's un- typically, and obviously he made the correct play by not playing it. But a lot of the time, the Tron deck will want to start with playing the star, crack the star. Right get deeper into expecting themselves more options and so my thought process was it probably isn't a star or a sphere otherwise he would have opened the turn on that so Mm -hmm. i I read him as having Boseju. obviously i was wrong but um i i think that waiting for i don't think that waiting it gets much better for
0: yeah yeah i Um, agree with that
1: and so i i think that I, I went for it and it didn't work and that's okay. It, yeah, like, But it could
0: have, you know, it could have, yeah, it could yeah. have won the pro and, tour on the spot. <laughs> and,
1: and given what I had sort of gleaned from what my, from what that last card might be from the way he played, um, I think my decision was defenseful. I also just obviously got it wrong. So maybe there were other factors that I didn't consider very well. And I've gone back and I, I've, I've thought about that match a lot in the <laughs> last, uh, last few days, but yeah. I mean, it, it's it's close and there there are a lot of other decisions that you could go with like like i could play the bowmasters there instead there, it's it's a super cool game to analyze from hindsight being 2020
0: but sure yeah absolutely and, and even just like from the perspective of someone watching it and seeing perfect information from both sides like i was on the edge of my seat that whole match just like that was crazy so yeah croaks that makes a lot of sense um i think Something we'll talk about in a little bit is just, you know, sort of being able to tech your deck for the mirror and, and being able to pick up some equity there as this deck is super popular and is showing up at 15, 20% of the metas is very important. Um, so the next card I want to ask you about is um, you played two copies of Fatal Push in the main deck. A lot of lists we've seen have, you know, something like Lightning Bolts there or uh, it's a split of some sort. So what was the thought on just the, the two Fatal Pushes main and only Bolts in the sideboard?
1: Uh, the Fatal Push's main were a hedge for the ring deck. We thought it would be more popular, and we wanted some more answers to Shieldred that could also answer a turn one Ragavan on the draw in the mirror. The Lightning Bolts in the sideboard were um, a- obviously a slightly weird-looking decision, but I think when you go through the theory behind it, it makes a lot of sense. So you want cards to be able to replace the Fatal Pushes within post-board games against things like Tron. Lightning Bolt, while not the most exciting card there, can kill a card of the Great Creator after they take it down and also Mm -hmm. give you some much-needed reach to be able to finish them off if they can uh, stabilize behind an ensnaring bridge. The Fatal Pushes were... Fine, they weren't amazing throughout the day, but I do like them a little bit better in the uh uh against specifically Shieldred, and there are obviously some some other matches that 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 can come up uh, against too.
0: Yeah, I was thinking like maybe Rhinos too. Obviously, that's not great, but it does kill a Rhino where the yeah. Bull doesn't. So yeah, all right, interesting. I just I wanted to kind of pick your brain about that and in hearing that it was more of a hedge against Shieldred is actually that's interesting too. So, the last one here in the main um, that's sort of divergent from some lists we've seen, obviously, some have kind of pivoted to this, is you had four copies of Fable of the Mirror Breaker and zero copies of Se- Season Pyromancer. This debate has been all over the place in the last few weeks. You know, what's the right split? Pyro's good for the aggro plan, Fable's good for the mid range plan. You know, what was your thought process on this? How did you kind of come to this decision? And what would you recommend going forward? So, there
1: are three main points that that I think pushed
0: Fable over
1: for for me and and Liam Kane than to push us to play them over Season Pyro. One, I don't even necessarily know that I agree that Spyro is better for the aggro plan. It makes more bodies, but it's a card that you're very, very heavily incentivized to not play until you're out of cards. Sure. so. It, a lot of the time it can make for awkward turn threes, whereas Fable, you're almost never upset to play the card at any point in the game. It's a little mm-hmm. bit worse when you're empty-handed, right? You're going to get less equity out of that second chapter. But it, uh, the fact that you can play it more proactively, and it's a little bit more agnostic to the current game state than Spyro mm-hmm. is, I like that quite a bit better. Yeah, the second point that. in favor of Fable is Orcish Bowmasters, if you play Spyro and they respond with Orcish Bowmasters, your Spyro did very little and gave them a pretty big creature. Fable mm-hmm. being able to just say, no, I'd rather not draw any cards right now, that that helps out a lot. But I actually think that's the, well, it, it looks like on the surface that would be the most important reason. I actually think it's the least.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: what I actually think is the most important reason is Fable is much easier to cast with your Blood Moon plan. You almost always want to fetch Swamp, Swamp, Red Source to cast Blood Moon, and then yep. you can't cast Season Pyromancer. That, A, feels really bad, which that isn't necessarily what should go into your decision one way or the other is, is how it feels, but <laughs> it also can create a number of game states where you play a Blood Moon, but you can't deploy an effective threat either because you had to fetch double red so that you could play Spyro and maybe you're empty-handed and it's just a grizzly bear and that's not really clocking them well, or you had to fetch double black to play a void Walker, but then they answer your void Walker, and you can't cast the Spyro to gas back up. You also have uh, the backside of Fable, the Reflection, can get you out of a lot of really weird spots that you can't otherwise with Spyro, specifically with regards to Ensnaring Bridge. One of the weird things about um, the list that I registered is I have zero main deck ways to remove an Ensnaring Bridge from the battlefield. And that's in part because Fable of the Mirror Breaker once you uh, can kind of grind the game to a halt, they have a bridge but nothing else specifically in the Tron matchup, and you can flip a fable, you can find a number of weird ways to end the game like you can grief lock them and if you have more cards in your library than they do, that can potentially win or Mm -hmm. you can set up two flipped fables do the fable copy my fable thing on their end step, and then untap and have all of your fables copy an orcish bowmasters and burn them out that way, so the reflection can give you a lot of weird outs to uh to to corner case scenarios that that i like having that sort of in my back pocket especially when since i don't have any way to remove the the bridge sometimes somebody might think oh i can just hide behind this bridge and that's good enough and in reality it might not be
0: yeah absolutely i I think that that's all very important things to consider i personally am, am also a big fan of fable over pyro and um Something else I think that's worth mentioning is just, you know, in this game where resources are, you know, going to be pretty light, you know, you are stripping the opponent's hand, being able to play a card that, you know, has really two modes that are must answer is great. You know, if they're going to if they're going to kill the token, then, you know, in two turns, you've got this reflection coming down that that is going to cause problems and they're going to have to answer again and at that point you know you've probably taken most of the resources out of their hand if not all of them and they have to find a way to deal with both of those and you know having those two modes on fable even though it takes a little bit of time you know that's fine and it's just better than one ones and again what you had mentioned about being able to play it proactively i think it's also important there's times where pyro just feels so clunky that you know you have a good card in your hand so you don't want to play it and discard that card and um i also am a big fan of just you know being able to slam a fable and and move on so um great perspective there now uh in the sideboard um we already talked about the bolts but the other sort of interesting addition you had was the two shoulders um what was the thought process behind those and, and what were you trying to hedge against there was that also kind of for the ring deck
1: Yeah, yeah. So the Shieldred is good, obviously, is extremely good against any of the the ring decks. Our assumption with the four-color decks is some amount of them we're going to be cutting down. We're going down on Solitudes and going up on Furies. Shieldred's Mm -hmm. obviously going to be pretty good into that. Shieldred is also really good into Rhinos. Because it, she's big enough that she just eats the rhinos and right. clocks. She can just hang back and make sure they can't attack you while also clocking them mm-hmm. uh, with with the trigger. It also that's actually another point in the favor of Fable to not to keep going back to that point. But uh, the deck is landlight, so having Fable be able to make those treasures is really key in making sure that you can cast Shieldred on curve.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I obviously you have a lot more reps with this deck than I do, but I've, I've been um, playing some leagues with it over the last couple weeks to play in some tournaments and I've been impressed with the card. I've, I've been playing at my board as well. And, um, that rhino's matchup can be tricky and I think it helps a lot there. Um, so yeah, I, I, definitely like that call. All right. So back to the main, um, Dorothy Voidwalker was an all-star, not just for you, but for everyone. All weekend long, we saw the card do some some crazy things, you know, turn three Ulamaga side. We saw, it, you know, it's copying Rhino tokens, it's copying counterspells, it's, it's just getting so much value, and I think, you know, in this archetype, it doesn't get as much attention as it maybe should when it's surrounded by, you know, like the flashy turn one scam package and um, kind of being in the shadow feels appropriate for it, but... What are your thoughts on on Douthy? And I, I'm I'm sure they're positive at this point. Um, but yeah, in my opinion, it's one of the best cards in the deck. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. I am 100%
1: in agreement. I, for obvious reasons, I'm going to be a lifelong Douthy Voidwalker fan. Yeah, but I also think that it does a number of things that the deck really needs. A I like to think of scam as a more aggressive mid-range deck, if not just an aggro deck. And so having a two mana, three power evasive creature allows you to win so many of those games where you scam them on one, but you need a follow-up, right? They can mm-hmm. you, you can take some cards, but they answer your grief. Having that extra three, two is really key. In game three of the finals, having the Voidwalker as a follow-up to the turn one Fury it it made all the difference, right? I, I probably would have lost the game to an extra draw step for a threat if I didn't have that second follow up threat, even to my turn one eight eight. But um, also being able, obviously, being able to use your opponent's cards against them can can a lot of the time make for some pretty silly looking games. <laughs> but specifically in the rhinos matchup, the fact that Dalthy allows you to effectively one for one. A ca- a, a crashing footfalls it's super super key the this deck is all about trading resources with your opponent and rhinos the reason the rhinos matchups can be so tough is because they're they make it so hard on you to trade resources with them
0: right so
1: voidwalker being able to do that makes a huge difference there then in the big mana matchups you can just whoops i made an ulamog on turn three <laughs> How smart! Okay. I am. <laughs> yeah right I, um,
0: <laughs> Uh,
1: it also gives you more uses for the Feign Deaths and the Undying Malice as you draw. Right, one of the the awkward things about the deck is sometimes you can struggle to get good uses out of those uh, the, out of those scam cards. Sure. And Voidwalker, you you can repeat it. It's always online. You're always going to be putting cards into your opponent's graveyard. So even if it's just casting a Shardless Agent and maybe cascading into a, a Ragavan or something. Mm -hmm. that's a that's still getting use out of every single card and when you're trying to reduce the size of the game state as um extreme in such an extreme manner that scam is being able to use every single one of your cards is super super key
0: yeah absolutely i I think that that play alone is you have six undying effects in the deck usually and you need one of them on turn one to to do the thing. So th- you got five cards that could otherwise just be a dead draw and, and being able to, like you said, turn those into an actual resources is, is great. Um, how do you kind of plan and strategize as far as that play goes? You know, when do you sort of identify that you need this, this Douthy to be swinging and be a clock versus like, I'm going to feign death and play something maybe marginal to just get some value out of it? How do you sort of view that, and, and what's your strategy behind it?
1: Um, I think that I think that's a pretty contextual question, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but in general, I prefer to be attacking with my Void Voidwalkers. I think some amount of that is personal preference. I learned how to play Magic with Aggro decks. I've almost my entire life wanted to go towards Aggro decks or mid-range decks that were focused on closing out the game. And so my default mode is... I want to be putting pressure on your life total. I want to be playing a one-drop into a two-drop and attacking you with them. Mm-hmm. Where it gets dicey is when I start... Well, I, I guess the, the easiest heuristic rule of thumb, whatever you want to call it there, that I can probably provide is if you start falling behind on board and you have something that you can get out of their exile that can catch you up. Easiest example, Crashing Footfalls, right? They cascade, they make the Rhinos, you're now behind on board. You can attack them for three, but they can attack you for eight. Conversely, you can just trade your Douthy for those Rhinos after maybe it's got a hit or two in on them, and then you're pretty content with that exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I, I think, like I said, it, it's pretty contextual, It right? You can you can have draws where you've got a couple of Bowmasters and a Lightning Bolt, and no, you can actually pretty feasibly race them with the Douthy, even if they have something like footfalls. Um, sure. Uh, you also, um, in in some matchups like Tron or, or Creativity is another good example, where you can just i made your big thing and stole the game from you that way if if, if you can scam them with your Dalthy Void Walker, you, <laughs> you should scam them
0: yes always always look for the scam <laughs> that, that actually is a, a good lead into what i want to talk to you about next is sequencing with this deck you know obviously scam them when you can the turn one scam play with grief is pretty straightforward um but you don't always have that. And watching over the weekend, it seemed like you were able to really gain an edge in a lot of matchups by sort of sequencing your place correctly um, when you didn't have, you know, scam online early. So I think some of these questions, there's th- three of them I want to ask. And, and I know that these are also kind of contextual. Um, but from your prep and your testing and stuff, when have you found like that it's worth it to risk the turn one scam for a fury? Because... Obviously, like that puts you down on cards, you don't get to check their hand. So if they remove the fury, you can kind of be out of luck sometimes. So what, uh, not necessarily what matchups, but just w- what situations do you look for, for that? You know, are you just jamming it and hoping for the best? Or are you sort of weighing your options? Um, I think that answer changes a lot
1: going from open to closed deck lists, right? Mm-hmm. I've I've spent a lot of my prep time, at least when I can, trying to think of, uh, trying to do my prep in an open open deck list scenario because the pro tour is open deck list, right? Yeah, and and so I'll typically try and scam the fury when I know that they have very few or very few to no answers to the fury itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the ring deck is a good example. The more traditional builds of mono green Tron are a good example. The handshake one. I don't know that I would be as comfortable going for the turn one fury scam because I know they have a bunch of copies of dismember. Yeah. Um, that a lot of it just comes down to how many clean answers that they have in a closed deck list scenario. Maybe I'm too conservative with this, but I would almost never want to. It's, yeah you you don't want to scam yourself exactly (laughs) so and and it's pretty easy for you to wait a turn for example and and right let's let's set up a scenario where i'm playing against an unknown opponent i'm playing scam and i'm on the play i have a Mm -hmm. reasonable seven with the fury scam and maybe uh uh, a follow-up uh, Douthi, Voidwalker, an Orcish Bowmaster or something. You can very comfortably go land go and see what they do. A lot of the time it's going to be something like a Delighted Halfling or mm-hmm. a Goblin Guide or a Ragavan. And then you're better off waiting till turn two anyway because right. then the Fury can tag their one drop as well. Um, I, I, I'm a little more willing to go for the Fury scam on the draw Mm-hmm. Uh, once because right you've you've gained a little bit of information on what your opponent's playing it makes it a little bit worse if they do something like land go but a lot of the time the decks that are going to play land go are decks that can probably answer the fury anyway which sure. makes it so that you're you're not as incentivized to do that regardless of uh, it, yes you could have done it on turn one but it probably would have gotten answered anyway
0: yeah that makes sense
1: i don't know if what i what i just said was terribly easy to follow but it i think in general if if you can if you're going to try and go for the turn one fury scam you want to have the information available to you to know that that's something that isn't too big of a risk
0: absolutely i think that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is is going into it blind can be super risky and and you don't want to throw the game away off no information so all right how does you know being on the play versus being on the draw we've heard a lot of talk lately about ragavan and you know, Ragavan was always worse on the draw, but now with Bowmasters and, and stuff and like also Ren, it's, it's even worse on the draw. So how does that position of being in the player of the draw impact your decision to kind of keep a land late hand with Ragavan and what does that look like for you on, on either side of that?
1: In a closed deck list scenario, I, I try to avoid it. I mm-hmm. don't think that that's, once again, it, it's sort it's it's a it's sort of like the, the Scamming Fury. I typically don't like making high-risk decisions in the dark if I can avoid it. Obviously, no one wants to make a high-risk decision without information. Sure. <laughs> but I think that that's something that you can very easily lose yourself games that you don't have to lose otherwise. Whereas in um in an open deckless scenario, I- I'm a little bit more willing to do it, right? I In Game 4 of the quarterfinals, I kept a one lander with a ragavan and a chalice because a, they only have four copies of a uh, four, four cards that are a clean one for one answer, right? My opponent, I'm sure boarded in some number of furies, so they mm-hmm. can just evoke the fury on one to answer ragavan, but then it's almost like ragavan scammed them itself, which right. is a You're pretty kind good of fine fury. with that. Yeah. 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 That, that's a, that's a perfectly acceptable exchange so once I have an idea that oh they only have four copies of dead gone otherwise I'll at least get one mana out of this and a follow-up threat even if I miss my land drop
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I'm I'm usually okay with that if they have more than four to six it starts to get yeah it's it's there are too many ways to lose this game when I don't have to yep. and rem- I think it's important to stress that scam is a deck that mulligans pretty well right you even even on mulligans to five you can still set up various different opening hands that can steal games regardless of how many cards you can't. So mm-hmm. I I think that you should be more than happy to mulligan a one land Ragavan hand in the dark or in, in a matchup where you don't think it's going to go the distance. It also depends a little, obviously depends on the context of the rest of the hand, right? I did have a chalice of the void, right? which I figured that can buy me at least an extra turn or so
0: in, even if i don't draw the second land immediately. Yeah. That makes that makes sense. You know, having you had something to back it up even though you still had just the one land. You mentioned something that i want to touch on in a minute, but i guess we can just talk about it now. You said that this deck mulligans pretty well. With the amount of scam running around in the meta right now, how do you sort of view mulliganing if you know that you're up against another scam deck and What's your sort of thought process on that? You know, in Pioneer, we always hear that you shouldn't mulligan against the Thoughtseize deck. You know, how does mulliganing look in the mirror right now?
1: I typically prefer not to mulligan if I can, yeah. or obviously no one wants to mulligan if they can avoid it. But sure, I, sure. I will keep, I I prioritize land heavy hands because mm-hmm. that opens up top decks. And I typically... um. If I'm on the play, I, I really would like to have a turn one removal spell because it at least forces them to maybe take a suboptimal card if they do have the scam on one. Otherwise, right. the games do play out pretty similarly to any other uh, mid rangey attritiony attrition-y mirror, sort of. Mm-hmm. So uh, I typically just try to keep hands that have... High resource, like uh, high uh, larger numbers of cards in my hand is obviously preferable. I like having larger numbers of lands to open up more top decks down the stretch. Uh, if it has Kroxa and lands, I'm almost always keeping it because that's going to be a card that I know can win the game even if I get scammed.
0: Eventually, uh, you're gonna get there. Yeah, yep,
1: exactly. Um, yeah, that so makes- I, I typically, while the deck mulligans really well, I don't want to mulligan if I can avoid it. I, I certainly would never go towards something like mulligan to ley line of the void or mulligan until you have scam. I, I don't think either of those are good are, are approaches that are going to win you more games than, than they, than they might hurt you.
0: Yeah, that, that checks out. And I, that matchup's interesting just because there's, I think just a lot of variance between, you know, who, who's going to do the thing and who keeps the better hand. And that makes sense that you're, you're kind of just rooting for the top decks and, and positioning yourself to play that that grind game okay so back to the sequencing thing for just one more question what is your thought process on you know we mentioned that the deck is has been traditionally laid on two drops now we have bow masters so we have you know eight copies between Dalthian and bow masters uh what is your your thinking or, or your sequencing traditionally for you know, playing a Douthy on turn two versus holding up that two mana to flash in a Bowmaster. If you bo- if you have them both in hand, again contextual, but just sort of generally, where are you at on that?
1: Um, the the things that factor in that decision for me are a. What is the matchup? Am I the beatdown? If I'm if I'm supposed to be the aggressor in the matchup, I typically prefer to lean towards Douthy. It's a faster clock. Bowmasters has. Higher impact later in the game because it's essentially a burn spell, not a great one, but it's it's a burn spell. That's something. It yeah. also um, fills the curve a little bit better than other ones do, um, or than 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 maybe Dalhi does just by virtue of having flash. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, another thing that goes into it is. Is my opponent going to make an attack that I can trade bow ma- trade part of bowmasters for a card? Right. If my opponent has a two two and it looks like they're going to attack, I absolutely want to try and trade the orc army and the bowmaster trigger for that two two. That's a great exchange from the scam side. And yep. now you're probably going to have a lot of better. Or a lot of better players will say, eh, "Maybe I don't want to throw my two two into this open two mana." And at that point, okay, I'll just play my bowmasters. He's sure, in. And you're fine with I, I, didn't, it, yeah. I, I didn't get the exchange that there the the highest value exchange I wanted, but I think that this is a deck that you really want to be trying to use all your mana every turn. So I think that if you're going to um, make that decision, you should still definitely be willing to just jam the bowmasters, even if it didn't trade for a card. You want to make sure that you're. You you want scam is a deck that wants to get ahead and wants to stay ahead, and so I think passing with a bowmasters up and then not casting your bowmasters is very rarely going to be a correct play. Um, otherwise, also when Dalthy is when either is a relevant hate piece for what you're playing against. If your opponent might, if your opponent's gonna cast an Archmage's charm, it feels <laughs> great to hold up the bowmasters. And sure. conversely, if your opponent's living end dredge some sort of deck where Douthy can really steal the game on its own obviously, I, I think you just want to favor the, the higher upside one.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that's great. All right, so back to now the mirror match. What are your sort of thoughts? And I don't know um, what you kind of discussed in testing or or you said that you thought this was going to be the most popular deck. Um, so I don't know how much you sort of teched for the mirror. Besides, you know, we've talked about Fable being really good, Croaks being good. Do you think there's any other tech cards kind of waiting in the wings right now that can help win the mirror or kind of flip it towards your advantage?
1: I like Shieldred quite a bit. It's another it's another threat that lines up well against Fury and against a lot of what the deck is trying to do. So I at least am approaching the mirror from a similar standpoint to the way that I've approached mirrors in Standard Raktos and Pioneer Rakdos. In I want to throw Haymakers at you. I think that especially given that cards like Fatal Push and Terminate can lose some amount of value in the, right? The traditional one-for-ones don't always feel as good in an attrition-y matchup. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that going towards something like Shieldred when maybe people are, are less excited about Terminating and Fatal Pushing in the mirror, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think that the the best advice I have for the mirror is accept that you're going to lose a fair amount of mirror matches. This mm-hmm. is a super, super swingy Deck and mirror. There are a lot. the The deck is built to capitalize on power spikes, and sometimes your opponent is just going to power spike you out of the game. Right? You're yeah. you're playing this deck to scam other people, and in the mirror, sometimes you're going to get scammed. My yeah. my loss to the mirror in 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 the pro tour was I mulliganed, and then my opponent scammed me. I was like, yeah, all right, that's that's what happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then game two, I scammed them and left them with black card feint death, and they drew grief. And then I hit them for four, they hit me for four, I hit them for four, they drew fatal push. And that like, right? It's it's not a matchup that you necessarily have lots of control over the outcome. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important to not let that bother you. That if if this is if this is something that you want to sign up to do, you you kind of just have to accept (laughs) that sometimes they're gonna do it to you in the mirror. Right. Which I know is maybe not the most uh, hey guys, I cracked the mirror thing. but I think it's important to accept that sometimes that's just going to happen and, and not let that derail your focus on the rest of your matches and and or let that derail you from making the best decisions in the mirror that you can with. I think trading void walkers is a lot of the time correct because while you obviously want to keep your own void walker in play, at least with the way my current list is configured, you're probably going to be able to out top deck a lot of your opponents. Um, Because I have more haymakers in my 75 than others do. So I think trading uh, in order to prolong the game is better if you have gone for the more haymakers approach, or maybe not trading is better if you're looking to go under your opponent in the mirror with more two drops and more burn spells. Mm -hmm. And, And so I think there are a couple different approaches that you can take to try to win the mirror but i think and i think picking one and sticking to that game plan with all of the decisions you make is important that you you want to sign up to either be the aggressor or be the 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 deck that wants to play the longer game Mm -hmm. in the mirror and i think that don't waffle between those plays is an important uh, is an important thing to make right you can you can certainly have oh i can make this trade that that might make the game longer but I'm trying to be the aggressor, so maybe I shouldn't do that is is something to to think about when you're playing the mirror, at least with regards to how you've constructed your deck.
0: That's a really interesting way to look at it, just kind of doing your thing and accepting how it how it's gonna go sometimes. I I like that perspective. And I think that a lot of times, you know, people will try to break a mirror so hard, and, and not just with this, but with other things too, that like then they take themselves off their plan you know in deck building or in play and and yeah it's it sounds like you're saying that you can just get more equity just sticking to your guns and doing your thing than trying to go too hard into teching for the mirror
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: awesome all right so i'm gonna put you on the spot as we wrap up this section um what is your favorite sort of secret tip or or a special sauce for playing this deck that maybe some listeners don't know about
1: one of the more important rules... So there are a lot of rules interactions with Douthy Voidwalker. That card is <laughs> that card is a headache.
0: Judge Nightmare.
1: <laughs> but um, the, the two big ones are, if you're playing against Living End, Douthy Voidwalker is frequently going to be better either untapped and not summoning sick, or in your graveyard. The reason behind this is, if your opponent Living Ends and your Douthy is in play, you can sacrifice it and just put it in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. That way it will A, come back from the living end. And because of the way spell resolution works, the li- the Void Voidwalker will be in play when the Living End goes to the graveyard, so it'll be exiled with a void counter on it. And then on your next turn, you can sacrifice the Voidwalker, cast their Living End and reverse it and your Voidwalker will come back again. So that that's something that's real that, that that really comes up a lot when you're playing the scam side of Living End is make sure that your Voidwalker is either in your graveyard or can get to the graveyard quickly because being able to just completely undo their living end is obviously huge in that matchup. The
0: That's wild, yeah.
1: The other one that comes up that I've found is um, Feign Death plus Douthy Voidwalker. If you Feign Death your Voidwalker and then sacrifice it, the Voidwalker will come back before the spell you cast resolves. Mm-hmm. So if it's something like a Crashing Footfalls, you can get the Footfalls, and then it'll go back to exile with another Void Counter, and you can get another Footfalls
0: out of it. Yeah, I think we um, saw you do that in one of the games. In the yeah, park tour, yeah.
1: In it, it, that's that's something that that I didn't immediately see when I first picked up the deck, and it's mm-hmm. something that comes up a lot and can can make a huge difference. Right? You can I if I get two rhinos for every one of yours that you play, <laughs> that's a pretty easy way to beat. Be. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> all right. Last question for this section. If you had to do it all over again, obviously we know the result worked out. Would you register the same list? Would you change anything?
1: I, I'm still not sure on the pithing needle. I'm, I, I kind of kept waffling. Do I want a pithing needle? Do I want a Coligan's command? Do I want to be able to answer a bridge if it's in play? Do I want to be able to needle the card proactively? So it's not really a concern. Sure. Um, I'm uh, kind of 50, 50 on that for this specific tournament. Other than that, I don't think I would change a card Uh, going forward. I think that you you want to think about the number of Blood Moons you're playing in your main deck and in your sideboard. Tron is going to pick up, but Scam and Rhinos are going to pick up. And right, Mm -hmm. it's not great in the mirror. It's not great into Rhinos, especially now that they're playing Four Revealed. But it's one of the more important cards in the Tron matchup and 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 the Amulet matchup. If if people decide (laughs) to pick up Dom's seven thousand page guide. which I would, as someone who used to play Amulet, I would highly recommend his his guide. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's a great guide. I, I for one, don't have the capacity to play Amulet in any serious tournament, but it is a great guide.
1: <laughs> but other than that, I don't think I would change anything for this tournament.
0: Okay. How about for heading into an open field? You know, we got RCQ season coming up and anyone thinking about playing this deck in a closed deck list open field tournament. How about any changes you'd make for that?
1: For an open field, I don't know that I would play the second Crooks in the sideboard. I think that Scam is going to be one of the more, more popular decks, but I think outside of the Pro Tour level, you're going to see even less um, convergence to a most popular deck, right? Yeah. Scam was 20% of the field of the Pro Tour. Uh, at Let's say a 20% RCQ, I don't know that four or five people are going to play Scam. I, I think that's probably going to be a little bit lower. Um... So I I don't know that I would hedge quite as hard for the mirror. I also might try to main deck a second Blood Moon. I think one of the most important things you can do into an open field is try to execute your game plan effectively in game one. And the best way to do that out of scam is to just scam them. Whether that's Void Walking, whether that's the Grief Scam, or whether that's Blood Moon, right? I I think that getting free wins in Modern in an open field is almost, that's always what I'm looking to do when I go into a, a closed deckless tournament.
0: Yeah, it's it's huge, especially as, you know, more rounds and everything, just being able to get the freebies is is important. So, OK, awesome. So before we wrap up for the day, um, let's talk just briefly about sort of moving forward. CM's place in the meta, you know, we had it kind of shoot up. It was popular for a minute, fell off pretty hard had um, you know, creativity and um, Yawgmoth got popular. We had four color up there again and now scam is just at the top um where do we go from here what's your kind of opinion on the deck's future and how do you see it playing into the meta as again we have rcq seasons coming up a lot more focus on on the format
1: i think it's going to get appreciably worse which pains me because i really (laughs) like this deck but um i think that a lot of the decks that did well at the Pro Tour have some weaknesses to Hammer and Burn. Both matchups are really, really bad for Scam. Yeah, um, Burn is really good at Burn is incredibly redundant and has pretty good inevitability. Right, most of the cards they draw are just going to be another Lightning Bolt. So, thought seizing them is necessary, but doesn't feel great. Um, and, and so, I don't like that matchup. Hammer is good at asking hard questions early, and also gets to play a bunch of Sanctifier envex which is one of the best sideboard cards against Scam. Yeah. Um. So I think you need to be, I would recommend teching if you're looking to play Scam, teching a little bit more for Hammer and Burn, finding maybe an extra Engineered Explosives as more answers to a result Sanctifier, things like that. As far as other decks, I think that we're probably going to see some amount of an increase in Tron, which is not bad, but Handshake Tron is not amazing for a scam either. Sure. Um, and I think we're going to see an uptick. That Team yeah.
0: Handshake built a built a good deck.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that those those guys are they're they're okay at Magic. Yeah, um, they, they do all right. And then uh, I think we're going to see an uptick in Rhinos as well, which also, I mean. I I think that matchup is certainly winnable from the scam side, but it's not what I'm looking to play against just because they're so redundant and so good at winning the game with a single card.
0: Yeah. Top Uh, deck. And so
1: I think that scam is going to get appreciably worse going forward, but I I don't think you should necessarily stop playing scam because like you said earlier, the deck is incredibly good at just beating anything when Mm -hmm. you get to scam them. And so one of the things that initially drew me to the deck is its ability to just steal games regardless of how bad the matchup can be
0: yeah absolutely so it it sounds like we we probably know the answer based on uh what you just mentioned as far as the deck probably getting worse but we have we do have bans coming up monday um do you think that the deck dodges the bans do you think that there's you know anything maybe on the table that's going to get hit what's your what's your outlook on bans right now
1: i don't think anything should be banned i'm also i'm, <laughs> I'm also not the like I don't know. I I'm not usually the biggest. Oh, let's let's speculate on bans, guy. It it. I I think that I think that there's. I think that it's relevant, and I think that it's something fun. Certainly fun to talk about. But I don't I don't like to think about it that way. I'd rather just this is the format. I'm gonna do what I can to prepare for this format, and then go on to the next thing. And if they ban something, well, they banned it. That sucks. Now maybe I'm a little bit jaded to it because I played Birthing Pod and I played Splinter Twin and I played Dredge with Golgari Grave Troll and and so I've just I've I've been hit so many times that it doesn't (laughs) even matter anymore yeah um I could certainly see a world where the argument for scam being a frustrating play experience I I I, I'm on board with that I think that scam Mm -hmm. is can be a very frustrating deck to play absolutely yeah I don't I don't know that I would ban anything out of it because of it but as far as Twitch chat is concerned, they're going to be banning <laughs> Dalthy Voidwalker, Grief, Urza's Tower. Um...
0: Oh yeah, everything, everything's gone. <laughs> no, I, I I agree with you, and I'm not a, a super huge fan of bans either. And I think that modern, what we've seen this year alone is like we've seen like four decks soar into that like top deck contention and shoot up to twenty percent of the meta on Goldfish, like. Every deck has been having its chance in the and the format has been rotating so cleanly and just sort of self-regulating itself. You know, obviously what we've talked about with scam being able to, to sort of take on any deck, it, it makes it a little harder to get around. But we just talked about two decks that have, you know, a really favorable scam matchup plus rhinos. Yeah, in my opinion, we give the meta a few months to figure itself out and, and I think that Modern has shown us time and again that it will figure itself out, you know, whether it's with new cards coming into the format or it's just people pivoting to decks that are good against something and just hating it out until it gets its turn again. Um, Yeah, I'm with you that I'm on team no bans, but we'll see on Monday. We'll see what happens.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think I think that like, right, we see Hammer and Burn pick back up. Well, those decks can have some problems with Murktide. We see Murktide pick back up. Oh, yep. Tide has some problems with Yawgmoth. Yawg- I, I think we're in a very good sort of cyclical thing where there are three or four different viable decks that can attack any potential best deck that rises to the top. And, yep. and I think
0: that's a really healthy place to be. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that yeah great discussion is there anything before we wrap up anything else that you'd like to add anything you want to tell the people about yourself and the, the latest pro tour champion any shameless promos you have
1: i want to give a massive shout out to my team sanctum of all they were incredible i really appreciate you even them even having me in the first <laughs> place um uh i'm gonna i'm gonna keep doing the the shameless wife guy thing i want to thank yeah, my you she awesome. uh Uh, she, she's incredibly supportive my whole family, all my friends. It was, it was really cool getting to see how many people were, were texting me that they're up at three in the morning watching, uh, watching coverage. So that was really cool. Um, I want to thank you for having me. This has been, Absolutely, a, it's man, been so it's been much great. fun. I've always wanted to get to come up on my soapbox and rant about <laughs> the intricacies of Black Red Midrange.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're the guy to do it, so I, I'm happy we we're able to get you on here. Uh, are you going to be in Atlanta this winter? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I I I actually,
1: book, because the the tournament's so close to Christmas, I actually booked my hotel really, really far in advance, Yeah, and then I... I I'm qualified for the pro tier now, so I don't. The tournament doesn't feel as high stakes, I guess. But I'm still gonna go. A lot of my friends are qualified, and so just gonna go. And I think it's Pioneer, right?
0: It is, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I'll probably still just play Rakdos.
0: Yeah, hey, you got Rakdos. <laughs> we we always have Rakdos. <laughs> well, that's but, great. Uh, I'll see you there. We'll we'll have to meet up and, and chat. yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as far as online goes, where can people find yet?
1: uh i am terminally on twitter at at make memes not war outside of that i don't like super have much of an online presence other than that yeah that's if if you want to get a hold of me that's probably the (laughs) best place to do it um
0: awesome we'll 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 put the link uh to your your profile in the show notes so people can find you on there but um other than that that is going to do it for today's episode jake thank you so much for coming on best of luck for you in the future and and at worlds and everything else that's going to come up for you now. Um, But yeah, stay in touch. And to the listeners, thank you uh, so much for listening to this episode of The Bolt Zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We read every review and love to hear from you. If you want to help support the show, consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can find the link to that in the show notes. And again, thank you to Boogie Board for their sponsorship. And then lastly, if you want to get in touch with Nathan and I with questions or anything you want to be talked about on the podcast, you can do that on Twitter with the hashtag #BoltZoneChat. But until next time, get out there and sling some spells.